Sinclair Ferguson was once asked a question regarding how to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His response was that so many read the Gospels in a somewhat self-centered manner, trying to write themselves into the Gospels. How do they see themselves as they read the, the life of Jesus? He says either, either is the one who can also now calm the waters or the one who can heal the sick or as the one who is called to step upon these stormy waters. His point being that as we read the Gospels, our tendency isn't to marvel at God's providence through the lens of redemptive history that became evident in Jesus upon his arrival. Rather, our tendency, because of our sinful condition, is to be more self-focused. We prefer to fix our eyes upon the divine power on display instead of how these miracles serve to show the people around him that he was and is the Son of God and the long-awaited fulfillment of God's covenant promises, Old Testament promises and prophecies. So as we work our way through Jesus' I Am statement this morning in John 6, 35 through 40, what I hope you'll see is how these miracles, this one miracle, this sign, when partnered along the I Ams, present us with a divine account for Christ's claims that he was indeed God in the flesh. But before we do that, we need to ask God for his blessing on the preaching of his word. So let's do that now. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we confess that our hearts are fickle, that our minds are factories of idols. Oh Lord, we are hungry, we come to you thirsty, we have parched souls, so Lord, enable us to taste and see, as the psalmist says, that you are good, and that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. Work through my stammering tongue, Lord, and point us all to our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might be satisfied in him. For we pray this in his name. Amen. John 6 begins with the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I assume many of you are familiar with that story. Jesus, at this point in our passage, has amassed a large following, rightfully so. They've seen him do many things. After he healed the son of an official who had fallen ill in Capernaum, as well as given an invalid man in Jerusalem the ability to walk without hindrance. It's important to note here, though, that as he leaves Jerusalem and heads to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, it's around the same time of the Passover feast, which commemorates how God passed over the Israelites and killed the Egyptians. Jesus goes up on the mountain like we saw Moses do on Sinai, and as he sees the crowd coming towards him, he turns to Philip and asks in John 6, verse 5, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Where should we buy bread that these may eat? And like Moses, after descending the mountain, asks the Lord in Numbers eleven thirteen, Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? What does Simon Peter's brother Andrew say, though, back to Jesus, while Jesus is still atop the mountain in John 6? He says, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are among so many? And what happens next? 
Jesus takes the loaves, gives thanks, and distributes it along with as much fish as they wanted to the seated 5,000, which was actually more than 5,000, as Matthew 14.21 shows us that this total didn't include children and women. The text also tells us that there was enough left over to fill 12 baskets from the five barley loaves. Incredible, right? Miraculous, even. The people now full saw the sign and they were marked, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They saw the signs and responded, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The Lord told Moses as much in Deuteronomy 18.18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. They knew this promise from the Lord. And now after witnessing the sequence of events, thought the promised prophet could indeed be Jesus. Fast forward to verse 27 of John 6. If you have your Bibles open, I invite you to turn there with me. Verse 27 of John 6 where Jesus says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. You see, Jesus feeding the people had deeper implications than a full stomach. And in the passage before us, we see God has given Jesus his seal of approval on his earthly ministry, and in doing so has identified him as the Son of Man. The promised Messiah, the prophet raised up from among his brethren, the prophet equal to, or indeed greater than, Moses. How then does the crowd respond to Jesus? Look with me now at verse 28. What shall we do, they ask, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? By this point, it's clicked, right? The crowd has put two and two together. Oh, he's, he's been describing himself this whole time. Jesus is the one whom God has sent. But what happens? Yeah, we want to believe in that. But we're still going to need a little bit more. Anything really just to validate your claim to the throne. It's two forms of identification. You can't have just one. We need two. Turn back around. Friends, are we not just like these people? Do we not also cling to that which perishes when we, in the same way, demand more signs? Why are we so quick to put Jesus on trial? Waiting for the one thing that's going to make our hunger go away. Maybe it's a slightly bigger income. I'd like to add an addition on the house. Lord, you've blessed us with a full quiver. That'd be nice. Or if only my spouse would change in this one particular way. If I could just have the one opportunity to show my boss that I'm capable, I'd have a little more responsibility. I would like that. Maybe a better title. Maybe a little more comfort. In 2020, there's a thing called Alexa. We've had it for two years now, if not longer. I don't think life can get any more comfortable. But do you see what I'm saying? We still need those things to validate claims. And we're just like the thrill seekers in Capernaum, though. Each seeking out Jesus, demanding more signs. Just one more. It'll stop at one. Just one more. I know you're the prophet, Jesus, that God sent to save his people. I believe that you are the king and you reign and rule over the entirety of my life with total authority on earth and in heaven. But if you could just fix this one thing in my life, 
If you could just give me this one thing and stop withholding it from me, because you know how much more thankful I'll be in return. I'll really then, I'll really believe, and I'll actually put my total faith and trust in you, and then I'll truly know, and then I can fully trust that you are all-powerful as well as supremely generous. Friends, if you and I are honest with ourselves, we, we have that one thing in the back of our minds that we hope he'll give us one day, don't we? You and I, we need more signs, do we not? These people, if you recall, hadn't seen Jesus, Jesus die on a cross, nor had they seen him walk out of the tomb three days later. But you and I know that about Jesus, don't we? And yet how often do our hearts fixate their desires on that one thing we're waiting on to put our faith in God, the Son, over the edge into that category of would recommend believing to others. And how does Jesus respond to the crowd? How does he then respond to us here this morning? Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What is it that Jesus is doing here? He's saying you all are more concerned about the sign itself than what the sign signifies. We're more concerned about the sign itself than what the sign signifies. It's like he's saying you're missing the bigger picture. There's always one. The manna wasn't the true bread from heaven that in his eternal purpose was planned by God to give his people. It was temporal. It had no salvific ramifications. Just something your body turns into glucose that raises your blood sugar. So naturally, after hearing the bread Jesus spoke of was the true bread from heaven, how did the people respond? What does our text tell us? What does the Bible tell us? How does John record it? Lord, give us this bread always. Lord, from skeptical and dismissive to immediately responding with the best of manners. Lord, give us this bread always. The Jews recognized the importance of what Jesus was saying, and they now politely and kindly ask him for this bread. So if you're the note-taking kind, our first point this morning is who you know, who you know. Jesus answers the people, unmoved by their hunger, by spelling out the response they need to make, and also the obstacle that stands in their way. Verse 35 reads, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In the simplest way, Jesus responds by saying, it's who you know. You want to be fed? Well, it's who you know. You want this bread, he says. Come to me. You must know me. The invitation is open, and it's an offer of a truly free gift with no strings attached. There's no asterisk at the end that you always forget to cancel after you've already been charged. As the bread of life, Jesus implies that as bread is a universal food, he therefore is for everyone. John Stott describes it as saying caviar, like cake and confectionery, is for the few. But bread is for all. 
He is the Savior of the world. You must know Jesus. His point is that there's a massive difference between Israel's manna and that of himself. Jesus is the answer to the needs of the human heart. And as the bread of life, the people must believe in him. They must trust in him for eternal life and not simply consume the bread. As Augustine puts it, if you have believed, you have eaten. If you have believed, you have eaten. Once tasted, Jesus removes the need for further satisfaction. He said to the woman in John 4.14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, will never thirst again. And now he's saying to the crowd gathered around him, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus alone satisfies the heart. And what a gift that is to those who hear it. The heart longs for meaning. To the point of despair, the things we bring ourselves to do. And yet Jesus' invitation, it actually is soul-saving. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And when Jesus proclaims he is the bread of life, he's speaking about his origin. Jesus' response to the people identifies himself with the same kind of provision that God gave in the Old Testament. The Greek translates it to ego, eme, and to the Greek here, It sounds redundant because Jesus literally says here, I, I am the bread of life. When God reveals his name to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14, he says, I am who I am. Exactly the same way Jesus refers to himself here in this verse. Do you see what what I'm getting at here? This wasn't mere coincidence. On Jesus' part, Jesus didn't say, it is I, Jesus of Nazareth. Rather, he says, I am the true bread sent from heaven by the Father, the bread that gives life to all who partake in it. Would you allow a stranger into your home without knowing anything about him or her? And before you say to yourself, because I know one of you is out there, well, I would. Yet I remind you of the multitude of security measures we all take on a daily basis. There's even doorbells that have cameras on them now. We want to know who's at the door before we physically get up to go answer the door. We We can't even look them in their eyes. We have a camera to see who it is. You therefore have to know who you're inviting into your home. So before you answer that question, think about it. Mark Johnston says of Jesus... In all his mercy, God has provided a Savior who's been publicly authenticated throughout his time on earth. As a result, not only the people of his day and age, but all peoples throughout history, all peoples throughout history, he writes, may see him for who he really is. In the 2,000 years that have passed, that hallmark of divine approval has not worn away. We know who Jesus is. So you see, we have to first, our first point, we have to know who he is. And we do, we know Jesus. Whoever comes to who? To Jesus. Whoever believes in who? Jesus. So what do they believe? What are two they believe? It's who you know. And now it's what you know. 
Well, we know Jesus, but what do we know about him? Verse 36 reads, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Jesus says the reason they have not believed in him is because the father has not granted it to them. The solution, it sounded simple enough, right? Jesus says their first step must be belief. And yet even though they've, they've seen him, they do not believe. Why? Why don't they respond even when confronted face to face with God's truth? That's the beauty of his love, though, isn't it? It's even greater than it first appears. In his book, Mortal Lessons, the notes on the art of surgery, Dr. Richard Selzer tells of performing a surgery to remove a tumor and of necessity severing a facial nerve, leaving a, a young woman's mouth permanently twisted in palsy. She asks the doctor if her mouth will always be like this, to which Selzer responds, it will because I cut the nerve out. It, it, it will forever. She nods, he rises and is silent, but her husband's there with her, only to tell his bride in response that he likes it. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her, making sure to accommodate her, to show her that his love isn't dependent upon nor conditional by her looks, by her outward appearance. And Selzer mentions this story in his book, as he tells of, of the bride and her husband, in which the husband says, I like it. As if her appearance would change his mind to the vows he made to her for the love that he has in his heart for his bride. Christ says to his bride, I love it. First Samuel 16, 7 reads, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, Yahweh, looks at the heart. Despite being dead in our sins, the Holy Spirit meets us where we are, nothing out of our own doing, and convinces us of our sin and misery, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renews our wills, thus persuading us and enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to us in the gospel, not of our own doing. Jesus assures his hearers that all who the Father gives to him will come to him, and none who truly come to him, this is the key, none who truly come to him will ever be turned away. Do you believe that? Those who were called and chosen by God's decree will come to salvation. Praise him for that. God's divine love will not go unrequited. C.S. Lewis explains that powerful reality known as God's irresistible grace and his conversion. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in and admitted that God was God. I knelt and prayed perhaps that night the most Reluctant convert in all of England. How many of us have that same testimony? You see, God's people, his children, cannot resist his irresistible pursuit. You can't outrun him. 
Those whom he has enabled to eat the bread of life will, by divine decree, they will consume it. That is the essence of the doctrine of irresistible grace. When the Holy Spirit, when God the Holy Spirit actively draws a person to Jesus, Dr. Sproul writes, that person comes to Jesus. When God the Holy Spirit actively draws a person to Jesus, that person comes to Jesus. Further, all true believers have the peace of knowing they will never be driven away. Those who come to Christ and profess faith in him will never be rejected by God. Simply because they're accepted in his son. Ephesians 1.5 Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He's affirming the fact Jesus is that there's a body of people in the New Testament known as the elect. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So why does this matter? Why does this matter to you and me this morning? It's who you know, it's what you know, and that's our last point, why it matters to those who know what they know. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. It matters, friends. It matters because the entire purpose of the incarnation of Jesus' coming down from heaven was not to do his own will but the will of the Father. That was his eternal implications, therefore, for you and for me. And what Jesus is telling us is that he's fully submitted to that will, to the will of his Father, rather than that of his own. How different is Jesus than us? That by offering up himself to God the Father, he is predestined, God is predestined, and as the once and for all living sacrifice, the bread of life Christ is, He then reconciles us to the Father. He reconciles us to God and promises us that all who come to him should not perish but have eternal life and be raised up when he returns. What a gift. What an assurance. One commentator writes, All who hear the words of Jesus in the gospel and begin to appreciate the depth of their need can reach out by faith to him and be assured that he will give them What they ask because his promise is true. The son is eternally one with the father. His people having been given to him, the son for his part undertakes to keep and protect all of them. Not one sheep astray. Simply put, to look to Jesus Christ is to have confidence of being raised up on the last day. And what a blessing that is for those in Christ. John Stott sums it up by saying eternal life with God in entirety is... In this sense, already given to the believer in Jesus. Our decision to follow him is a response which is rooted in God's everlasting purposes. God has claimed us from the very beginning. It's not our choice. The son will raise us at the end. Therefore, we belong to eternity forever. Friends, when we partake of the bread of life, 
It will never be lost. Jesus said that those who eat the bread of life will be saved. Not might be saved, but will be saved. We see this truth revealed to us later in in this chapter as Jesus responds to the Jews quarreling amongst themselves over the eating of his flesh. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus takes up permanent residence in those whom the Father gave to him. It's about who you know, what you know about him, and what that means. What that means for you and what that means for me. So knowing this, how then do we feast on the food that does, that does not perish? How do we do that? The answer is that we have to look at the person and what we know about him. We have to look to Christ and what we know about him. As one commentator put it, the crowd, instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they see in the sign only the bread. Jesus revealed to us that the sign was pointing to him, that he is the bread of life. That's the heart of the passage. Jesus is the bread that does not perish. And we see this throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John. Ferguson again pointed this out, saying, The wine that ran out in chapter 2, the life of Nicodemus that was mere flesh and blood in chapter 3, the inadequacy of worship that took place in Samaria and Jerusalem, in chapter 5, the man near the waters but who would never be healed. And now in chapter 6, these people who are seeking bread that can never satisfy. And when Jesus gives wine and satisfies in chapter 2, life that satisfies in chapter 3, worship that satisfies and wholeness that satisfies in chapter 5, here, feeding that does what? It satisfies. The great question they should be asking, he says, is where do we get the bread of Jesus? What does Jesus say again and again? The only way to be nourished by this bread, the only way to eat the bread of life is by faith. Salvation is either all of grace or it's all of nothing. Salvation is either all of grace or it's all of nothing. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined a Christian as a man or a woman whose mouth has been shut. What a phrase. So are you trying to obtain salvation this morning through your actions? Are you trying to maintain salvation this morning through your actions? Have you embraced the propositions of truth yet failed to embrace the person of Christ? Have you eaten the bread of life? What God requires of us to be in relationship with him is to come with the empty hands of faith and say what? I believe. Help my unbelief. If anyone here this morning is yet to trust in Christ, is yet to call upon him while he is near, go to Jesus. Trust in him. Only he can give your soul the nourishment it so longs for. Whoever comes to him, he says, shall not hunger. Whoever whoever believes in him shall not thirst. And praise be to him that these are his words and not mine. You want respite from the world's delicacies? Are you tired? Are you hungry? Find your appetite nourished in the bread of life. And Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray.
Father, we are hungry. And so often we run to our work, to our relationships, to our money, to our comforts, all of which deceive us into thinking they can satisfy our hunger. Forgive us, O Lord, for not coming to you. For you have provided for us the the needs of your people in Jesus. You've provided the bread of heaven. And so humble our hearts here and now. Father, help us to drink deeply of your goodness to us in him. Move us towards him, we pray this morning. Amen.